Anti-Semitism and assimilation have been the two greatest challenges to Judaism throughout Jewish history. And Christmas is a great way to spark the conversation. In this class, we talk about the obstacles to being Jewish in a non-Jewish world. As always, please like and share this podcast, ask a question, or leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Being Jewish in a non-Jewish world, an appropriate topic for today, December 25th. You know, it's an interesting thing. Some people, some Jews in particular, find today, December 25th, they find Christmas to be a bit of an intimidating day. Feel, you know, there's so much Christmas stuff out there, whether it be jingle bells that you hear when you go to Smith's, whether it be your next door neighbor's obnoxious lights, everything, it's so in your face, right? Christmas is so in your face. And for many who don't celebrate Christmas, you can feel a little uncomfortable. Now, where do I fit in? What about me? I feel a little left out. Left out. How do we process being Jewish in an un-Jewish world. I want to talk briefly, specifically, just about Christmas for a second. You know, we're only intimidated by things that challenge us. So for example, if you're Michael Jordan, you don't get intimidated when you have to play a one-on-one against a good high school basketball player. Because you're so much better, it's just not, you don't feel any feelings of, oh my gosh, what's gonna be, uncomfortable. Um, it's not a competition. If you're Coca-Cola and the kid next door, you're the CEO of Coca-Cola and the kid next door has a, a lemonade stand, you're not intimidated. Let the kid sell his lemonade. Coca-Cola will be just fine. It's not a competition. I was doing a little research. I listened to someone sent me a class that was very helpful. You know, you talk about a lot of where Christmas comes from and you see those bumper stickers, you know, keep Christ in Christmas. You ever see that on the back of a cart? Why? It doesn't take a profound chacham. It doesn't take a profound wise person to look at Christmas as celebrated in the United States of America today and to see just how shallow it is. This is not a profound insight. There's nothing to almost all of the commercialism, which is Christmas in the United States in the 21st century. Even when you look at the origins and the religious parts and some of the traditions of Christmas, December 25th, it's not mentioned anywhere in any of the Christian early texts as being the birthday of Jesus. Now, eventually, yes, it is celebrated, even religiously, as the birthday of Jesus. But it certainly has, again, I'm no expert, and you can find, I'm sure, all sorts of material online in the right places. That Christmas is, by and large, its origin story, at least, has its origins in different pagan holidays, which the Christians very strategically gobbled up and incorporated in their religious celebrations to make it easier for pagan worshipers to not have to completely abandon their own old practices, still hold on to some of their old practices, and be able to celebrate it within the context of Christianity. That's really the story of Christmas, December 25th. It was an old ancient pagan holiday, and they turned, well, that'll be the day where we celebrate Jesus' birth. Trees are certainly a pagan tradition, Mistletoe, anyone know where mistletoe? These things have no origin story. There's no depth to any of this stuff. Saint Nicholas was a virulent anti-Semite who came an important figure in some pagan cult who used to terrorize little children. So they changed it. Where does the red of Santa Claus come from? It's, if you look at the old pictures, it wasn't red. He was actually a creepy guy in a black coat. <laughs> it was Coca-Cola who wanted to make him a little bit more of a cheerful yeah, it's a true story. You want to give them a little bit, a little bit more of a happy theme to it. They gave them Coca-Cola Red. That's not, that's not a thing. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because when you contrast, you know, Christmas, trees, lights, it has no basis. It doesn't really signify anything. It's not an ancient, you know, religious practice. It's all, and again, I don't mean it in an offensive way. I mean it in the reality. It doesn't, there's no substance, there's no depth to any of it, which is why so many Christians themselves find Christmas to be a very hollow holiday because it is, at least the way it's celebrated in the United States. And I bring that up to contrast. If we feel intimidated by something that's shallow and hollow, 
We have to ask ourselves, does that mean my Judaism is shallow and hollow? You look at Jewish observances, the Torah, the mitzvahs that we do, the profundity, the depth behind each and every mitzvah, the volumes that have been written by the greatest of giants of Jewish history in the last 3,000 years, the Vilna Gon, Rambam, Rashi, every detail in Judaism is so nuanced, is so meaningful. None of it's made up. There isn't a practice in Judaism that doesn't go back 3,000 years to the Torah. And every single one of its observances and rituals and meanings has symbolism, has depth, has profundity. I have never in my life been intimidated by Christmas. I look at it, I'm like, why are you putting up, you know, elves on your shelves? I could tell you why I do the things that I do. And the meaning and the messages and the origin stories. We know exactly what it's all about. And 99% of what we see in the Christian world today, in the United States of America today, it doesn't have, and again, it's not, this is not an astute observation. I don't, it's not, I, by the way, I don't even think it's an offensive observation. It's a reality. The more confident we are of our Judaism, Christmas will be meaningless. I've never felt uncomfortable by Christmas. I've never in my life felt uncomfortable. You know, some Jews are very uncomfortable with Christmas and they get uncomfortable. They're lighting a Christmas tree. Why aren't they lighting a menorah? At the White House. And we say, like, let them light their Christmas tree. Who cares? It has no meaning. It has no value. I don't need anyone to validate my own Judaism. You know when you need external validation? is when you're not comfortable with what you have. If we believe in the authenticity and the beauty and the depth of all of our religious and Torah practices, I don't need to light my menorah for anyone else to validate it. My validation comes from within. And I think you will find an inverse correlation between religious observance and that comfort that people have with their Judaism to the discomfort that they feel by Christmas being so in your face. If my coworker says Merry Christmas today, I'm, you know, to me, I'm not offended. So long that they're not trying to kill me, I'm fine. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. I'm not intimidated, I don't care, I don't need you, I don't care. Let my neighbors say Merry Christmas, fine. It's right, it's not right. I don't need anyone. I don't need at the holiday party, make sure that you've got a happy Hanukkah sign. I don't need you to validate me because I am comfortable internally with my own Judaism. And I think it's such an important thing. If you're not comfortable with Christmas around you, if you're not comfortable with Santa Claus and the elves and all the dancers and prancers and all that stuff, I wonder if the answer isn't so much fighting Christmas as it is embracing our Judaism. Be more comfortable with your Judaism. The more comfortable you are with your Judaism, the more depth and understanding you have of the Torah and the mitzvahs that we observe, none of this Christmas stuff will make you uncomfortable. I, I really think that's true. But that's Christmas. What about the other 364 days of the year? I'm going to spend a few minutes this morning talking about being Jewish in a non-Jewish world. It's an interesting verse uses a paradigm of being Jewish in a non-Jewish world. Perhaps the paradigm that all of our Rishonim, all the earlier sources really highlight, they talk about, is the encounter, we read in a few weeks ago's Torah portion, the encounter between Jacob and Esau. <coughs> Jacob representing Yisrael, the Jewish people, and he bumps into Esau, representing the non-Jewish world. And our sages learn all sorts of things. Ramban tells us these are messages. Not, it's not just a story of what happened 4,000 years ago, but it's a lesson for how we today, says the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe Nachmanides, the actions of our forefathers are a portent. They reflect on future generations. How did Jacob interact when he saw his brother Esau representing non-Jewish ideals and values and a non-Jewish world? And there are a lot of different ideas, and I want to share just two. Jacob prays, this is an idea that Beis Halevi, who those of you who are at the explanatory service, 945, Shabbos morning, this last Shabbos, and those of you who weren't there should feel guilty and ashamed of yourself. No. Remember, we spoke about a story about this rabbi named Beis Halevi, Rabbi Soloveitchik, lived in the mid-19th century. And he says an amazing idea. He says, you look how Jacob, the prayer that Jacob offers to God, the prayer that Yaakov recites 
immediately before encountering Esau, he says an amazing thing. He says, He says, save me, God, protect me from my brother, protect me from Esau. Protect me from my brother, protect me from Esau. And says Beis HaLevi, there were two themes that Yaakov was hitting on. Save me from my brother if Esau comes and treats me. He's like, hey, Yaakov, my old buddy, my old pal. Welcoming, loving, embracing. That's not always such a great thing. Sometimes living in a non-Jewish world, we find ourselves very comfortable, very welcomed by the non-Jewish society around us. That has one set of challenges. And Jacob says, I need to be protected from those challenges. <laughs> Jacob also says, Miyad Asa, but also protect me, God, from the hands of Asa. Sometimes the non-Jewish world wants us dead. Those are two different challenges. And throughout our history, we've had to deal with these two differing types of challenges. And very apropos for today's day and age, where I think we have a funny blend of miyada chi, miyada esav. Some of the challenges that we have nowadays in the United States of America in particular, sometimes our biggest challenges are that we live in too nice of a society. You know, we're only used to our lives. If you compare 2023, almost 2024, United States of America, what American Jewry is today, and you compare it with virtually any other era in Jewish history, this is the most welcoming society, the most accepting society that Jews have ever been a part of. Miyadachi. You got to be careful, though, and recognize there are dangers associated in terms of being Jewish in a non-Jewish world when that non-Jewish world is loving, welcoming, and kind to us. Yet at the same time, sadly, we're also seeing a rise in miyare sub, the anti-Semitism that's growing. How do we deal with that? When you talk about the non-Jewish world being accepting, being kind, look at the United States of America today. And yes, anti-Semitism is on the rise. But by and large, and please God, that should come and go. The here of Emenu speedily in our days. Things get back to where they were, let's say October 6th of this year. But, you know, there's always a couple of anti-Semitic people around us, but by and large, comfortable, safe, certainly no institutionalized anti-Semitism, governmental anti-Semitism, generally speaking, it should stay that way. And it's very easy, and it could be very dangerous to maintain our Jewish identity, to maintain our Judaism in that kind of Jewish world, for many reasons. The temptations of the world around us, Non-Jewish world has a lot of temptations, whether it be non-kosher food, non-kosher ideology, non-kosher all sorts of stuff. And it can be very easy and very quick for Jews to lose their Jewish identity. And that is sadly the story of North American Jewry from its very inception, mid-17th century till today, has largely, sadly, been a story of assimilation and acculturation. And we need to pray and we need to do the best that we can God, you need to protect us and we need to do our job protecting ourselves from a very enticing American society. You know, Rambam tells us a message we share all the time. Rambam tells us one of the most powerful driving forces of human behavior. He says, We've quoted it many times, but it's so fundamental. It's human nature. Our values and our beliefs are drawn Achar chaverov vireyov, our friends and our colleagues, ubnei medinaso, and the people of our country. You want to know who you are. You want to know what your attitudes are. If you want to know what it looks like to look in the mirror in terms of understanding our own beliefs, our own identities, our own behaviors, our own values, you have to look at the people around you. The people we associate with very much influence who we are. I shared a story not too long ago. Mentioned it to Rabbi Goldman not too long ago. He knows my story. He knows where I'm going. What am I going to be talking about? Shopping carts, Rabbi Goldman. The shopping cart story. Does everyone know the shopping cart story? Rabbi Goldman's like, oh, the shopping cart story. He's heard it one too many times. But I'll share the shopping cart story. It's an amazing story. It's really an amazing story. This is a profound story. It's a fellow named Sylvan Goldman. As far as we know, no relation. He's a nice Jewish boy. I believe he was, I don't remember all the details. I don't have my notes in front of me. I believe he was from Oklahoma. 
where he had started, there was a news, this is in the interwar years, I believe. And, you know, back in the good old days, the turn of the 20th century, there were no real grocery stores. You had, like, remember, they were called them dry goods stores. You would go to these tiny little stores and you'd get a couple of things. But really beginning in the interwar years, you had the new invention, the new wave of things called grocery stores, right? Where you can get all sorts of things. There were much bigger stores. They carried fresh produce. They carried all sorts of things. The problem that Sylvan Goldman had because he started, he opened up, I think, a local A&P, then a Piggly Wiggly, and I don't know, whatever it was in Oklahoma City. The problem was where his customers weren't used to these big grocery stores. His customers typically were, who did all the shopping, the grocery shopping in the 1930s America? Housewives. And they would come in. How did women go shopping? They came in with their little baskets, their dainty little baskets. They would come into the store and put five or six little things into their little baskets, and they would go home. Sylvan Goldman had a problem. He's got this new humongous grocery store. He doesn't want these women just walking out with six things. He wants them carrying 6D things. He, this is a grocery store, after all. The problem is, is how are you going to hold? It's going to be too heavy to hold. So he had a brilliant idea, Sylvan Goldman did. Can I borrow this for a second? I apologize. He had this brilliant idea. He basically got a folding chair. It looked like a folding chair. He stuck wheels on the bottom of the folding chair, and he put a basket on top. It's a brilliant idea. And now what have everyone wins because the women who do all the shopping, they can make fewer you know, trips to the grocery store. They can get everything that they need. They don't have to carry it and be weighted down by their... And their little bags, they got to put all the stuff into their shopping cart. Sylvan Goldman wins. Why? He's making more green in his cash registers. Everyone wins. What could go wrong? I'll tell you what goes wrong. People's behavior, we are slow to change. And these women, we're not used to these weird contraptions. They would go into their store. They would see these shopping carts. He would give demonstrations how to operate them. But no one was interested. Why? Because we're creatures of habit. And the women would come in with their little, you know, dainty little bags. And they would get their six or seven things. And that was it. And you'd be like, oh, I got the shopping cart and the wheels and the whole thing. And they're like, uh, what? What are you going to do? Sylvan Goldman was Jewish. I don't know if you ever studied this passage of the Rambam who tells us that we're massively influenced by the people around us. I don't know if he studied that Rambam. But I'll tell you one thing. He sure, certainly understood human psychology. No one's using his shopping cart. What does Sylvan Goldman do? Brilliant idea. He hires 20 women. He says, here's a couple bucks. Walk around my store with shopping carts. And sure enough, what happens? You see 20 people using a shopping cart. What are you going to do? Use a shopping cart. He patented the shopping cart. Every time you use a shopping cart, Sylvan Golden in heaven is getting a buck. He became a very wealthy man. because, And that's the origin story of the shopping cart. Right? Next time you're on Jeopardy, you'll thank me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an amazing story, the power of the influence of the people around us. And we talk about being Jewish in a non-Jewish world, recognize, you know, thank God we live in a wonderful society. And even with all of the problems in the world around us, and it is scary, and I don't know what the future holds. But the reality is today, just looking today and not thinking about tomorrow, the freedoms and comforts and acceptance that we as Jews have in that non-Jewish world are unparalleled in the history of Judaism. I'll repeat that again. They are unparalleled in the history of Judaism. We take that for granted, and we shouldn't. We are so welcomed. We're so part of the non-Jewish world. And that's a good thing. That's a blessing. But like everything, it's a double-edged sword. Because the same way we're permitted, and we're allowed, and we're welcomed for the most part, in the non-Jewish world, guess what? It's a two-way street. We then become influenced by the non-Jewish world around us. And what happens to our Jewish values? It's so easy to assimilate. It's so easy to acculturate, and it's so easy to abandon our Judaism. We have to be aware of that. So what do we do? What do we do? The reality is, is we're influenced by the world around us. I'm going to share an idea that I got from this book. Bent Flyberg, Gesundheit, 
It's, he's like Norwegian or something like that. So he's got all sorts of funny letters in his name. Don't read this book. I always say there's certain books I don't want you folks to read because I get all my stories from them. So this is one of those books. Don't read it because then I'm not going to have a sermon next week. Okay? No. It's, it's an amazing book. Matter of fact, I told a story from this book for those who are at our Hanukkah Habayas for our, our building dedication event that we had the other week. I told a story from this book. I want to share sort of the part two of that story. It's an amazing, and you'll just bear with me. You'll see what this it really, at first glance, has nothing to do with our topic for today, but you'll see it very much does have a lot to do with the topic for today. I'll tell you a story. Story, couple, they want to renovate their kitchen. They want to renovate their kitchen. So those of you who are at that event, you know the story, but it's not the same. It's the part two of that story. <laughs> I called them, I forget what I called them, Schmerl and Sprinza. A nice Greek couple, right? They're Schmerl and Sprinza Goldberg. And they want to redo their kitchen. They want to redo their kitchen. And, but they're really detail-oriented people. Oriented people. And the plan how they're going to redo the kitchen, this time... The last time, for those who were at our event, they, they went all out, and it ended up being a fiasco. This time, Schmerl and Sprinza, the way they want to redo their, remodel their kitchen, they're DIY people. They're going to cut on costs. Schmerl is a very handy guy. They're going to do a lot of the work themselves. So it's really just material, but the labor, Schmerl could do it himself. Schmerl and Sprinza, they're a great team. It's not a huge project. It's a small kitchen. They're going to do it all themselves. This is not, these are, these people know what they're doing. They budget everything. They caught, they really plan, measure down to the 16th of an inch. They're really good. And they order, you know, they plan, they know exactly what they're going to paint the cabinets, redo the granite countertops, do, redo the walls, the flooring they're going to redo, everything. They got it worked out, details, spreadsheets, They've priced it out. They've got it all worked out. What could go wrong? It's going to cost them $20,000. $20,000. They think it'll take them three weeks. Where'd they get the number $20,000? They priced out everything, all the things that they needed to buy and renovate. And it cost $15,000. They wanted to be safe, so they budgeted it in another $5,000 because, you know, always their cost overruns. So they threw in an extra $5,000 just to be sure. Three weeks, they really think they could do it in one week. They, you know, all the stuff is in, they know exactly, it's in stock, they know where to get it, everything is fine. They're gonna give themselves three weeks, they figure one week, all right, three weeks, just to be sure. What could go wrong, right? How is this project going to end? We know what's gonna happen. It's gonna go way over budget, right? It ends up costing, because what happened? I'll tell you what happened. What happened? He ended up, they redid, they took off the floorboards and they saw there's mold. They didn't see that coming. There's mold down there. So that's a whole, right, mold. They take off the walls that they're going to redo and they look at the, the electrical wiring. None of it's up to code. They're going to have to redo all of the electrical wiring. Price skyrockets now. They bring in the granite countertops. They're going to put it in themselves as they're bringing it in. You know, sprints of trips. Drops the granite, cracks in half. They now need to order another thing of granite, right? Now being a $20,000 project, it's a $47,000 project. More than double. Instead of three weeks, it's three months. What should Sprinza and Schmerl have done differently, right? Hired, this wasn't a huge project. Wasn't a huge project. It wasn't a mistake. Was it really? Should they have hired? Does that mean anytime you want to do a DIY project, you shouldn't do it yourself? I don't know if that's the answer. By the way, you hire someone else. Maybe the price also could have doubled if you hired someone. For those who came Saturday night, that's what happened. Right? Things can. What? What advice would you give Schmerl and Sprinza? It's a really good question. By the way, like this is such a con. Right? This is like a common thing. Of, I don't know if you've ever redone your kitchen. This is true on so many house renovation projects. By the way, Bent Flyberg will tell you this is true with any huge project. You want to build a nuclear reactor. You want to build, I don't know, a high-speed rail line from, I don't know, Vegas to L.A. 
right? Oh, it'll be $3 billion and it'll be done in 18 months. I guarantee, by the way, mark my word. Everyone's going to remember, you're going to call me a prophet. Remember, you know, everyone's following what's going on. I guarantee you, I think it was 3 billion is what they said. Guarantee you, guaranteed, guarantee you it'll be double that price. Not, not 20% more. I'm not talking about 10, 20% more. I'm talking about double, if not three times the price, by the way, if not 10 times the price. 10 times, I'm telling you, there is a chance it'll be 10 times. Guarantee you it'll be double the price. I guarantee you it'll be 2.5 times. Mark my word. However long they're saying it will take, guarantee you it's double. He talks about highway speed. It's one of those, it's not so much that people get it wrong, they get it massively wrong. It's true about small DIY projects. It's, it's true about all sorts of industrial projects. What are you supposed to do? So some people will say, you, the execution was done wrong. You should have hired a better team. Done, you should have done more. The execution was wrong. There are at least three failures in psychology that Schmerl and Sprinza and our high-speed you know, rail line are getting wrong. There are at least three things that they're getting wrong. Number one, it's called the uniqueness bias. It's like, I'm doing this DIY project. I'm going to look at, I went through a list of all of the costs, and this is, this is my little unique project. You know, did you bother to think about, you know, what about your next door neighbor, about your friend who's also doing a kitchen remodel? We don't think about that. What does that have to do with my project that I have all the costs written out? Looking at the guy next door is not relevant, right? Study after study, call it the uniqueness bias. We think that we're unique. And we all obviously are. And we all have our own little, right? We're all unique. But the reality is we're not as unique as we like to think. We think, so for example, and we tend to, oh, by the way, we tend psychologically to overvalue our uniqueness. We think we're like more special than we really are. Classic study. They did a study. It was in the University of something. University of Nebraska. 68% of professors thought they were in the top 25%. Like if you have student rankings of professors. So what percent is going to be in the top 25%? 25%, right? 68% of professors think they're in the top quarter. 94% think that they're above average. This, right? This is called the uniqueness bias. He, listen to this. This is brilliant. The average person thinks they're smarter than the average person. <laughs> that is profound. And it's true. Raise your... I'm not going to do... Don't embarrass yourselves here, folks. Raise your hand if you think you're an above average driver. Right? We all do. The odds are 50% chance that you're wrong. <laughs> the average drive studies show 93% of United States, of a, of a sample of United States um, residents put themselves in the top 50%. The average driver thinks they're better than the average driver. That's not true. You probably are the average driver. <laughs> we tend to think, I'm different, I'm special, I'm this, I'm that. And my little DIY project, it's unique. Okay, might be, but it might not be. Number one, that's one psychological mistake that we make. Number two, bad anchors. That, when we go ahead, what did the, let's go back to Schmerl and Sprinza. What did they do? They added up the costs that they could figure out. It was about $15,000. And they went and they said, they, right, they, it's called an anchor. They used something, an anchor. And then they pivoted off of that. They said, you know what, let's add another $5,000. And that's, we'll call it a $20,000 budget. Whenever I at, we, you ask someone a random question, if I were to say, how old was, what year was Abraham Lincoln born? What year was Abraham Lincoln born? As an example. So, okay, think of whatever answer you think of. You probably, here's what you did, right? I know what everyone in this room, right? Here's my, again, what year was Abraham Lincoln born? Think about it. You have an answer? Terrific. This is what you all did. Unless you, you did one of two things. Either you know the answer, I believe it's 1809. Either you knew that because you came to Rabbi Matt's stupid American history class on Abraham Lincoln or something like that. Or if you didn't know the answer, what you did was the following or something close. Right? Tell me if I'm wrong. What you did is you said, well, I know he got like assassinated Civil War time. That was, I don't know, 1865. He looked like he was 65 years old when he was killed. He was born in the year 1800. 
Is that what you did? Yep. Right? That's what you did. Right? What psychologists call is you found an anchor. 1865, Civil War. I know he was assassinated. He looked like he said, and then you pivoted off of that. He looks roughly 65. He was born in the year 1800. That's great, and that's actually a very helpful way of solving life's problems. The problem is, and psychologists have point this, pointed this out, oftentimes we have very bad anchors, and we pivot very poorly off of them. So for example, this is one of my favorite ones. This Danny Kahneman, nice Jewish boy, who's won the Nobel Prize in, in um, economics. He's one of the most brilliant thinkers of economics. He said the following thing. He did, they created a wheel of fortune. They asked people the following question. The question was, um, estimate the percentage of UN members that are African. What percentage of UN members are African? Okay. So again, either you know that answer, or you're going to try to find some anchor and pivot off of that. Right? That's probably what you're going to do. Okay, fine. Kahneman did the following study. Before he asked these people this question, he had, you remember the price is right? You know, spin the wheel, Bob. Remember that whole thing? Spin the wheel. It's a total wheel of fortune. Spin the thing. And it would come up on a random number. And you saw whatever number, totally random. That not, and then he would ask people that question. And they found... That the number that the Wheel of Fortune thing came up to influenced people's guess because they used that as their anchor and pivoted off of it. So, for example, when the Wheel of Fortune stopped, for instance, on 10, the medium guess was 25. When it landed on 65, the median guess was 45, which just highlights we oftentimes pivot, we create anchors and pivot using totally ridiculous metrics. So, oh, $15,000, I'll add $5,000. Why do you add $5,000? Why don't you add another $50,000? Where'd we come up with these numbers from? We don't. We make stuff up. So, Schmerl and Sprinza have the uniqueness bias. Number two, they are using bad anchors. And number three, one of the other things that they really forgot to look into or to put into their calculations, something that modern psychology calls black swan events. You ever hear that term, black swan? Nassim Taleb came up with this, the black swan event. The basic, it's the title of his book. He's, I happen to not like the book, but you can go read it if you want. It's called Black Swan. His basic idea is, right, it, it comes from a story or a legend that it used to be that no one thought, there's no such thing as a black swan. Swans are all white. Until one day, what happened? He saw a black swan. And that became a code word for sometimes we never think, I mean, hijacker is going to slam a plane into the Twin Towers? And then it happens. Crazy one in a minute COVID will never happen. And then it does. These totally, you know, unusual events that totally throw off our planning. How do you, how do you, as Don, they, they Talib would always, he, he, he quotes Donald Rumsfeld. Remember, remember Donald Rumsfeld? Love him or hate him. He said the smartest thing in the world. There are the known knowns and the known unknowns. We can deal with that. What can we not deal with? The unknown unknowns, right? The unknown unknown. We don't, the things that we don't even know about that we don't know about, those are scary, right? We can predict what will happen if Russia gets into a war in the Ukraine. You can kind of predict that kind of thing. A plane slamming into the Twin Towers, you don't think about that. That's not, it's an unknown unknown. That's what happened, by the way, to Schmerl and Sprinza. How are they supposed to know that, she was, that there was mold underneath the cabinet? How are they supposed to know that the electrical wiring wasn't up to code? How are they supposed to know that they were going to break the, the granite? How are you supposed to budget that in? It's a very good question. a very good question. How are you supposed to budget something that you don't even know about? What are you supposed to do? So what's the answer? So I'll tell you the answer that he comes up with, and I think it's brilliant. I personally believe it's brilliant. And it is so germane for our conversation today. And this guy has, by the way, consulted with like huge governments around the world. Huge governments for major projects. They all use this guy. He calls it reference class forecasting. You see, what Schmerl and Sprinza did wrong is they looked at their unique situation to come up with their budget. Then they pivoted off of it and they failed to look at Wild things that might happen. They looked at their specific project. Costs and moved off of it. What they should have done is looked at people 
or projects in their reference class. Find 15 other people who have renovated their kitchens, ask them, and then divide, basically find those 15 people and then divide by 15. That's your budget. By the way, ask a second step. Ask them step more. By the way, what was your initial projected budget and what was your actual budget? How far off budget did you go? So then what they could do is find their budget, find the average, what average people budgeted in, and then you'll see the potential for the cost overruns. He said the brilliance of doing something like that is you solve all three of these biases because your project isn't as unique as you think it is. It's not as idiosyncratic. Find 15 other similar types of projects that at the power of the law of averages will give you a pretty good shot. And it'll give you a pretty good estimate of how much you should budget in for cost overruns. It'll solve all three of those problems. It gives you an actual number in terms, in terms of setting your anchors as opposed to just guessing. You have real data. It shows you, and by the way, 15 projects will probably deal with black swans, very likely. You'll see, you'll be able to see. Were there any pot projects? You can actually look at the data, right? One guy budgeted $25,000 and ended up costing $75,000. You know, one out of 15, there's a one out of 15 chance that this project will cost three times the amount. Now you actually have information that you can use. And he uses this idea, by the way, for small, it's a brilliant idea. Reference class forecasting. Find similar projects, get the data. I'm sorry if you're not a data person, but this is, it's a real thing. It really will work. It'll save you all this heartache. And he says this works for huge projects. High-speed rail. Building a nuclear power plant. Big projects. You'd be shocked how many big projects don't use reference class forecasting for all the biases and other reasons as well. And you, we are wondering, how could they have gone so over budget? You look at projects that are on time and on budget, it's because they've used this type of mathematical formula. Thank you, Rabbi. That's very nice. Now we know what to do when we want to remodel our kitchen. Why does that have anything to do with how Jews should be Jewish in a non-Jewish world? It has everything to do with it. Everything, everything, everything to do with being Jewish in a non-Jewish world. You know, we want to forecast. We want to think. What will the Jewish community look like in 10 years? What will my kids look like in a generation, in two generations? If we ask ourselves as individuals or we ask ourselves collectively, what do we think? My, my kids, where will my kids, where will I personally be in terms of my Judaism in 25 years? How do we all answer that question? We are all subject to the same three biases. What do we do? We look at ourselves and we say, well, I, I love my Judaism. I'm very proud of my Judaism. I came to a brunch and learn on December 25th. I didn't go caroling last night. I had matzo ball soup. I love bagels and lox. And we do all, the, and we, say, we forecast, and we say, well, this is who I am now. I'm sure that type of Jewish identity, Jewish observance, we forecast that to our children, to our communities for the next generation. And we fail to recognize three major problems. A, we uniqueness bias, right? We look at the fact that assimilation rates are at like 75 to 80%. That's a reality. I'm not making that up. The data says that. But we think, no, 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 but I'm different. I'm different. I love my Judaism. My kids see me. I'm so proud of my Judaism. And we think we're different. We're in the 25%. We're not part of the 75%. Uniqueness bias. Number two, we use a very poor anchor. I look at my religious observance today, my Jewish identity today. I look at what my parents were like. I look at what my grandparents were like. And we use that and we forecast that. I'm sure my Judaism or my kids' Judaism or my grandkids' Judaism will probably be the same kind of thing that I am today. That's a very poor anchor because the world is a very tempting world. And just because we have our Jewish identity, how do we know we're not going to change in 10 years? How do we know our kids aren't going to change the next generation? Our grandkids. Our Judaism today is a very poor anchor for what Judaism is going to look like in the next two generations. And number three, perhaps most important, are the black swans. 
What are the black swans? I'll tell you what the black swans are. Talk about your, my, my boy. Jewish boy, I want him to have pride in his Judaism and observance. You know what a black swan for a nice Jewish boy is? A cute, attractive, charming, non-Jewish girl. Right? I send my kid to the University of Kentucky for four years, and he meets Christina, who's really cute, really sweet, really charming. Right? That's a black swan. Will Judaism, right? my anchor of Judaism, I, this is what I think my kid will be like today, will that survive a black swan event? That's a very scary, these three things are very scary to think about. We talk about Hatzilini no they save me God, right, from a non-Jewish world. It's one thing when you deal with the anti-Semitism, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what about an accepting world? What about a world that loves us and embraces us? Are we so confident that ourselves or the next generation or the two generations from now are going to really have the strength to remain Jewish? In that non-Jewish world. Data doesn't lie. Data does not lie. I'll tell you the only answer. The only answer I know. The only answer I know. Is right here. <laughs> How's that for a shameless plug? It's, no, but I'm serious. It's if, if, if we're not engaging in our Judaism. In a very real way. This is what the data will show. People who have are very proud of their Judaism, have a strong Jewish identity, that doesn't prevent all the problems that we just discussed. It doesn't. You talk about what percent of Jews are, you know, celebrate Hanukkah. I think we said 80% of Jews have, have a menorah. Having a menorah does not correlate with making sure that my grandchildren will be Jewish. It, it doesn't. Observing a Passover Seder doesn't. Uh, but Rabbi, I go to show once a year. That's that's it, that's not correlate. I, I don't mean it as a pejorative. I mean it as a, as a sad as as a motivator. If we are really motivated to making to ensuring Jewish continuity, Jewish generational continuity, the only statistic that works is when we really embrace our Judaism and our Torah in a real way. When we prioritize our Torah, when we prioritize our Judaism by coming to a brunch and learn, not just once a month, but I then come to the, a class, I study the Torah on my own in a group, I come to a synagogue on a regular basis, on a very regular basis. Regular basis does not mean once a year, it means once a week, probably if not once a day. That, then we have a shot. Then at least we have an anchor that hopefully a pivot off of, and even then there are no guarantees. But then we have a shot. But if we're not really and genuinely and sincerely prioritizing our Judaism, it's a very scary world that we live in. What does that look like for you in a real life? Like, what do we need to do? Speak to Rabbi Katanik and Rabbi Goldman afterwards. And they will, right, tailor make a roadmap. What does that really, really, really look like? But I can tell you right now, let's, Learn the lesson of Ben Freiberg, whatever the guy's name is. Use reference class forecasting. Look at people who are similar to us. Let's not be, you know, the uniqueness bias and think, well, no, I'm, I'm just, look at people around. What happened? I'll give you an example. I'll tell you something that I don't believe in. I'll, tell you, I'll stick my neck out and get cut off. Sending your child to a four-year college at the University of Kentucky is probably Jewish suicide. No, but there's a nice Hillel, there's a Chabad there. There are also far more Christinas there than there are Hillels and Chabads. Putting a child, in a, a, 20, a 19-year-old boy or a 19-year-old girl in a four-year environment, not in a home, not like deeply connected or in, you know, to a Jewish thing. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not even offering an opinion. I'm not offering an opinion. I'm saying look at a reference class forecasting. Don't think that, you're so, that we're all so unique and we're all so special. Look at 20 other people who did the same thing and see what, what happened. If it works, great. But if it's the statistics, it cannot, we have to have the strength and courage to be will, willing to look at the data and willing to look at the truth. If sending your child, if you're comfortable with the data of what it looks like to send my child to a four-year school, I'm using that as one example. There's so many other similar practices that we in the Jewish community are comfortable with, and they don't make sense. They are not good practices if, you just, if we just study them with the data. That's my Hatzilini Miad 
miat achi, save me from a world, a Jewish community that's, a non-Jewish world that's accepting. With two minutes left, let's talk about briefly miat esav. What happens, sadly, tragically, when we see in the world around us a rise in anti-Semitism? What do we do? What's our response? The one thing I would say is we should never overthink anti-Semitism. Ron Rabbeinu Nissim says very, he says, what, why, are there, why is the world anti-Semitic? Sometimes we like overthink where it comes from. We all have our theories, and there, there are a lot of reasons. But the most basic reason, he said, and he's writing in the 1300s, he says, it's human nature, right? If you're a Redskins fan, you don't like the Cowboys fans. It's called in-group, in out-group bias. Natural human nature is we root for people who are similar to us and we don't like people who are not similar to us. Hopefully we can overcome that bias. But it's a natural human bias. As Jews, we don't eat the same. We don't worship the same. We don't have the same beliefs as the overwhelming majority of the non-Jewish world around us. By definition, that creates an in-group, out-group bias. People don't like people who are dissimilar to them. Does that mean everyone will dislike us? No. Does that mean it creates a natural environment for there to be hate? Yes. And if we want to know why there's anti-Semitism in the world, it's because we have different beliefs. But Rabbi, what about Jews who totally assimilate? There's still anti-Semitism. Hitler, after all, didn't care about your religious beliefs. It was racial. That's true to some degree. That's because within four generations, you're still going to be somewhat different. After five generations, you pretty much, you know that 80% of Spain has Jewish DNA in them? Because it took five generations after the expulsion. 1492, quarter million people, stayed Jews stayed behind in Spain. They assimilated. It might take, I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but you give it a few generations. But so long that we're different, there will be anti-Semitism. If you go to Arlington National Cemetery, you will see, anyone ever been there? Right across, you can't miss it, right? There is one of the biggest statues in Arlington National Cemetery is for a, a World War II hero named John Dill. Ever hear of John Dill? He was basically the British liaison. He was a field marshal. He was like basically the highest ranking person in the British military. He, he died in 44, the end of 40, like November 44. And they buried him in Arlington National Cemetery. He's got one of the most prestigious graves there. He was the reason why the British and the Americans were able to work together. As I mentioned, in, a few, in, a few, in two weeks, we're going to be talking about the story of Auschwitz, an uprising in Auschwitz. And I've been doing a lot of research and study about it in more detail, and we'll talk about it more then. One of the big questions that people want to know is, why didn't they bomb Auschwitz? Why didn't they bomb Auschwitz? Right? The answer is going to be, why didn't they bomb Auschwitz? Who are the they? Ultimately, it's certain people who made the decision that this is not the right thing to do. You know who two of those people were? One was John Dill. And Nachum Goldberg, one of the heads of the you know, Jewish community then, he pleaded and begged John Dill, bomb Auschwitz. Dill's like, no, we're going to kill innocent people. He's like, they want you to bomb them. Oh, we can't divert bombs. You need to use it for military purposes. Goldberg's like, the 12 bombs that you're going to use to bomb Auschwitz is not going to make a difference in winning the war. John Dill says, I just hate Jews, basically. This is a person, he's mainstream Americana. John McCloy, was one of the leaders in the War Department, was against it. He was the they who said, we're not going to bomb Auschwitz. Why? He's, if you ever read Walter Isaacson, wrote a book, appropriate for today. It's called The Wise Men. Wise Men, these were the people in the mid-1900s, 1950s, 1960s, who led America. John McCloy was one of them. Rabid anti-Semite. We should not be shocked that anti-Semitism exists today when less than 80 years ago, our very country, and I'm as patriotic as the next guy, but the worst kind of anti-Semitism, the worst atrocity in the history of mankind, was tacitly approved of and ignored by the mainstream rank and file. It shouldn't shock us if 80 years ago, Mankind can send Jews to the gas chamber and the whole world can watch it happen and not do anything. And we're shocked. How could it be that their children or grandchildren are now anti-Semitic? We've been lulled into a false sense of complacency. And I know it's a rude wake-up call to, some, to a lot of us, 
But it should, one thing it shouldn't be, it should not be a shock. Please God, that's Hashem, it's, it'll, you know, the good guys are going to win. But, you know, we talk about save me God from assimilation, save me God from anti-Semitism. We should never think that, like, no, it's 2023! The world is such a safe place. The world hasn't lost, the world has lost its mind and has never regained it. I'm going to end with one last story because I've gone over. One last story. Talk about being Jewish in a non-Jewish world. Just to give us perspective. Someone asked me to remind them of this story last week. This is one of the most beautiful stories. I shared it not too long ago. It's one of the most beautiful stories. Talk about being Jewish in a non-Jewish world. The Kleisenberger Rebbe. Have you ever been to Netanya? You've been to the, I always forget the name of the hospital, the Lamens, Leando Hospital, Laniato. That was the Kleisenberger Rebbe. It was a giant of giants. He lost his entire family, and I believe his 11 children in the Holocaust. He rebuilt his life, and he rebuilt the Sons dynasty, the Sons Hasidic dynasty. If you ever heard of Kiryat Sons in Jerusalem or Netanya, that's him. He was a giant of a man who was able to rebuild, rebuild his life and the lives of so many others, and he made a promise, I'm going to build a hospital one day. And he did. It was an amazing story. An amazing story. I want you, everyone to think about this story for the rest of the day. It was in the labor camps in the middle of World War II. I don't think it was Auschwitz, but somewhere nearby. It was a particularly horrific day. He said it was raining. The Nazis wouldn't give him any shelter. It was horrific. A particularly horrific day in one of the most horrific moments in the history of mankind. And one of his fellow inmates, a Jew, goes over to him and he says, Rabbi, is this what it means to be the chosen people? Look at our suffering. Look at the horrors. And we're the chosen people. Really? It's a profound question. Closer Rebbe thought for a moment. And he turned to me and he says, I want to thank you. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I believe he really meant this. It's such a powerful idea. He said, from now on, we recite the prayer, We recite it in the holidays, the Shemona Esrei. We thank you, God, for choosing us, being Jewish. You love us. You chose us. I'm going to say that prayer with extra enthusiasm, with extra kavana, with extra focus, when I think about what I'm going through right now. And he said, I'll tell you why. Because if you give me a choice, you can only choose one of two things. You can be the victim right here, right now, in the hell of the Holocaust. That's option number one. Or option number two is you could be that Nazi animal. I will take it again. I would rather be the victim than to be that Nazi animal who has lost his humanity. I would rather go through the Holocaust again, lose my wife and children, than to live a life like that. We have the decency of having meaning in our lives, of having a Torah, having a purpose. I would rather, that, it's such a profound idea, I've lost, my, my, all my great-grandparents were killed in the war. I would rather redo it all over again than to live a life Without the Torah, and you can end up being a monster like the world around us. We talk about being Jewish in a non-Jewish world. It all goes back to where we started. We have to appreciate the gift of the Torah, the gift of our Judaism. We have to really make that a part of us. And if we do that, if we're really able to internalize the message of the Torah... Don't worry about the world, what they say about us. God chose us. We're special. We've got the Torah. I want to thank you all for coming. And please, God, we'll see you next time. I'm here to stick around if anyone has any questions. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.